Welcome to Tales of Britain and Ireland. This is a podcast telling the stories, legends and folk tales of Britain and Ireland in no particular order. Presented by Graham and coming direct from South Yorkshire, each episode tells a story or selection of stories from all across these islands and throughout their history, followed by a short and decidedly inexpert discussion of the origin and themes of each tale. Now before we begin today's story, we need to do just a little bit of scene setting. A few episodes ago, we discussed some stories of churches, which, while I told them about a specific place, are really generic stories, which have a tendency to move around, the same tale being tied to one place, and then another, and then another, with a huge number of versions, where essentially the story is the same, but the place names, the dates, the names of the characters might be changed to fit a more local location. And that is one type of story. But there are others, which are bound tightly to a very specific location, which require a particular place, a certain people, an exact date and time. Such it is with the legends of the Lincolnshire cars. The distinctive essence of the landscape of the cars is woven thoroughly into the fabric of these stories, and cannot be simply unpicked and put somewhere else. Lincolnshire, for those not familiar with it, is a large county on the eastern coast of England. Today it is largely given over to farming, but in centuries past it was partly composed of vast areas of marshland, of which little remain today. The cars, often spelt C-A-R-R, distinguishing them from the vehicle, are specifically areas in the north of Lincolnshire where there are vast areas of swamps bordering rivers. Today, they are transformed into fertile farmland. Stagnant water is drained away and redirected by pumps, dikes and channels to make a charming patchwork of fields crisscrossed by canals. The transformation of the land from marsh to fertile farmland is not simply a modern thing. The process of reclamation has been going on gradually since the 17th century, little by little, turning more and more of the swamp from barren, diseased bog into usable farms. The stories of the Lincolnshire cars are set at some indeterminate time when this change had not yet really got underway, when the land was still covered by huge dreary marshes. The few inhabitants of this godforsaken area of the country lived lives far removed from the rest of England, set aside by their habits, their culture and even their language, such was the strength of their dialect. A strange and dismal wetland, sitting all alone. So, that's the place where this story is set, and let's get on with it. The car lands in the daytime were certainly no good place to be. All pools of still, putrid, black water with the only movement in greenish trickles between the ponds. The ground underfoot was soft and wet, ever threatening to suck the unwary into the boggy depths. But, on a dark night, the cars became a land of true haunting horror. Creeping shapes emerged from the swamps, the boggarts, the -the will-o'-the-wisps, 
snatches of voices that belonged to no one living could be heard in the breezes. Hobgoblins danced on tussocks, and witches soared through the air, going about their diabolical deeds. Dead blackened branches transformed into serpents and slivered under the water, and ever more strange things lurked in the deep, inky blackness. But fortunately for the people of the cars, on most nights the moon shone. Boldly and brightly, the moon shone down on the bog pools, casting them in brilliant illumination. This caused the evil, crawling creatures of the darkness to cower, retreat back from whence they came. And so, a careful person could walk around almost as safe as in the days. Now, of course, every month, the moon had to take her rest. But on the other nights, the peoples of the Carlands were kept safe by her brilliant light. Now one day it came to pass that word reached the moon of the nature of the evil that dwelt in this land. By what method it reached her, we do not know. But we do know that she was intrigued. It must have been pretty boring being the moon, up there just watching the earth. She wanted to get in on the action. And surely it couldn't be quite as bad as she had heard, could it? So when the moon came to take her rest that month, rather than retiring to her usual place, she wrapped herself in a black cloak and lifted a black hood over her yellow shining hair. And she stepped down from the sky onto the cars. She took herself to the edge of one of those great stagnant pools and looked upon it. Water broken up by grass tussocks, small mounds of sodden earth and great protruding roots and branches, all twisted and broken. It was all so very, very dark, the only trace of light in the reflections of stars and the shine that came from the tips of the moon's toes, which protruded ever so slightly from her cloak. And just like so many oblivious victims in paint-by-numbers horror films, the moon took the decision to wander onwards. Her ears were deaf to the cries of, Don't do it! Get out of there! What are are you doing? From the knowing audience, themselves clued in by the ominous music playing in the background. But the moon had more she wanted to see. Though she trembled in the dark and the cold, She was brave and foolhardy and interested, and so she pressed on. And as she did, she began to discern things in the darkness. A great red eye staring. The lanterns of the -the will-o'-the-wisps. More shocking still, from the waters rose the bodies of the dead. Horribly gnarled and warped, with fire in the sockets of their skulls, and cackling witches riding great black cats grinned horribly at her. You've got to go back now, yeah? No, 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 you you still seen all that. You're still pressing on. Well, and indeed the moon continued, stepping from one clump of dark grass to the next, with all the lightness of a summer breeze. Oh, come on! You know, you almost deserve it now, 
cried out the imaginary audience. And everything was going fine. Until she misstepped on the wet, muddy ground. Her foot slipped and she fell and was almost plunged into the foul-smelling water. By instinct, she reached out, grabbed a root tight with both hands and found, to her relief, that it held. Then, in that moment our audience has been waiting for, the root twisted in her hands. It wriggled, and in an instant, a wooden tendril wrapped itself around her wrists with a quick, vicious, and very final sounding snap. The moon fought. She struggled with growing desperation. After a while, there was no doubt. She was held tight by this twisted root which seemed to grow in front of her and become part of something bigger. It held her. It held her here in the swamp. She looked around. There was great activity all around her, but it was all the evil creatures going about their infernal errands. No one to help. And despite being the most glorious feature of the heavens, for all her efforts, she was stuck fast. Yeah, she was the most glorious. The sun, the sun you say, that guy, you can't even look directly at him. It's always the sun that and the sun this with you people. Do you have to cover yourself with sunscreen to bask in the brilliance of the moon? Do you? The clue is in the name. No, no you don't. But anyway, this was no time to concentrate on such matters. In a short time, the moon's struggles gave way to real despair. She was all alone, but for the monsters of the night. But presently, she heard something different. A great cry of terror off in the distance, which gave way to a heart-wrenching sob. Someone else was out here in the darkness. A voice pleading desperately into the night. And this is a night of darkness which we do not really know now in this age of electric light. A dark where, however much one's eyes might adjust, one cannot discern the hand in front of the face. And in that darkness, someone was crying out, afraid. The voice came again, in pain and fear. And now the trapped moon could make out the splashes of footsteps coming closer, slipping and sliding on the mud. Footsteps that came rapidly, far too fast to be safe. The footsteps of one despairingly trying to flee. An anguished cry came again. And then the moon saw him. A man, his face with eyes wide in the greatest fear. And around him were the dead, were the bogles, were the willow of the wisps, leading him further astray with their lanterns. All the creatures shaking with evil laughter as they toyed with their prey. They were gibbering and chittering and they danced around him. And from the man's fear adult mind they pulled his secret thoughts, his shames, and they whispered them back at him mockingly. Teetering on the verge of madness, he tried to grab at his tormentors, and he caught a creature, which turned in his hands to a slimy, shapeless worm and slipped out of his grasp. The moon watched on in horror as the bogles forced the man to stray further and further from the path 
and nearer and nearer the quick pools where he'd be pulled under to his death. And damn it, she was the moon. She wasn't going to put up with this. And she struggled with renewed vigour and purpose, and still she couldn't get free. But she could shake the black hood from her head, revealing her long golden hair. And from under it, a brilliant light shone out in all directions, shocking the abominations. And the evil things fled back, back into the dark places they dwelt. The man was overjoyed to see the light again, and to witness the shrinking back of his pursuers. He could see now how perilously close he had come to his doom, but also he could clearly see the path, and grabbing this unexpected chance firmly, he ran as fast as he could, following the way out of the swamp by the blessed light. And such was his haste, he didn't quite register the source of it. The cloak-wrapped moon and her yellow hair still held firm by the great twisted root. He fled for his life out of those terrible bogs. On her part, the moon was overjoyed to have saved the man. She watched with delight as she saw the effects of her power on the creatures of the swamp and felt a tremendous relief as she watched the figure of the man escaping into the distance. I did it. I'm the moon. Hell yeah. No one messes with the goddamn moon. Yeah. Get out of there, guy. I did that for you. Did the sun ever save your life? I bet not. Yeah. I'm the moon. I am the best. Yeah. The figure got smaller and smaller. He was really quite far away now, too far to hear her shout. The moon looked around, looked at her hands held by the root. Yeah, I'm, I'm the moon. Oh. She lay there in the mud, and then started to pull again, to struggle. All around her she could hear the sounds of them, just out of her vision lurking in the darkness under the water or under the soil. She could feel them watching her from their safe vantage points. They knew. And when exhaustion at the futility of her task finally overtook her, she slumped forward. And as she did so, the hood fell again around her head. Try as she might, she was so tired that she couldn't shake it off again. The darkness had returned and the creatures started to emerge from their hiding places. They were very nervous at first, but getting bolder, they began to creep closer. When there was no sudden burst of light, they grew bolder still. One of them screeched dramatically, and they all froze, got ready to run. Nope. No light. And now they knew. And they swarmed around her, mocking her, taunting her, and worse, spitting and snarling and beating at her. They recognised her, their old enemy, the one who held them back at the time when they should be strong. And now they had her. The witches cackled, and the bogles laughed with a mad glee. "'Tis you who spoil our spells,' said the witches. 
who are clearly very different from modern witches, who are all about moon worship, really, and they're not all lurking around in swamps being evil, for that matter. And you send us to the corners of the world, howled the Bogles. And you keep us in our coffins at night, moaned the dead. Which kind of suggests that maybe we're doing funerals all wrong, if the dead want to be outside of their coffins. And also some very serious theological questions are raised about the nature of the afterlife, which will not be addressed here in any way at all. The moon cowered and sobbed, racked with fear and despair. We'll poison her, went the witches. We'll smother her, whispered the crawling horrors. And we'll strangle her, screeched the dead hands, somehow. These are just hands. I am unsure of the mechanics of their vocal cords. No, no, we'll bury her down here with us in the dark, declared the dead men. Now there was no real hierarchy amongst the nighttime swamp dwellers, though I'd like to think that the dead men were above the dead hands. It'd be rather embarrassing the other way round. Anyway, this meant that they continued to squabble about what to do with her. They screeched and hollered worse than any internet comment thread, until the first pale grey light of dawn began to colour the sky. If she could just last till day, thought the moon, then someone would be sure to help. But the marsh beast saw the light as well, and suddenly, overcome with the fear she might escape, they managed to put aside their differences just for a little while. The dead grabbed hold of her, holding her cloak to her body tightly so that no light escaped. And they pushed her down into the water and mud. The Bogles, for their part, brought forth a huge, strange black stone, and they rolled it on top of her, crushing her into the dank earth and green, slimy water. As day broke, all those horrible beasts fled into the water, or into their coffins, or wherever else they found to hide themselves during the day. And they left the moon there, in agony, unable to move. The stone covered her completely, so no one wandering the marshes would find her. And there she remained, crushed, powerless, and in utter despair. And yeah, you'll have noticed that this story really doesn't pull any punches, even though it's actually one of the lighter ones in the collection from which it's drawn. Now, no one noticed the moon's disappearance for a few nights. She was normally away for a few nights, and the people of the marsh were given to sheltering in their houses at this time of the month. When the time came for the moon to reappear, the people dressed up nice, so as to be ready for her. They put pennies in their pockets and straws in their caps. You couldn't be found looking shabby when the moon was staring down at you after all. I mean, show some respect for what is definitely the best astronomical body. But on that night, there was, of course, no moon. And much disturbed, the people had to resort to hiding in their houses again. 
perhaps someone had not dressed up just right. So the next night, they waited again, each hat straw arranged perfectly. But still, no moon. And worse, the nightmarish marsh dwellers seemed to be growing bolder. The boggarts would come amongst the houses at night, and their faces would appear at the windows. They'd snap at the latches, and people became so afraid that every house started to burn lamps overnight. For without the light, it seemed like the creatures may be bold enough to cross the threshold of the doorway, and then there'd be no telling what they would do. Huddled around their fires, the inhabitants of the cars stayed awake through those long nights, trembling and shaking, unable to venture anywhere until the break of day. And still, no new moon appeared. Now there was a woman who lived in the old mill, a woman full of hidden knowledge and secret ways, and it was to her that the people turned in this their hour of need. What's happened to the moon? they begged of her. And the wise woman turned to the arcane tools of her craft. The book, the mirror and the brew pot. Which were rare back then. Not like now when everyone's got them and we're always clairvoyancing using makeup mirrors and battered copies of Catherine Cooks and paperbacks. After looking at each object in turn, the wise woman was baffled. This is strange. I can't see her. I can't tell you what's happened to her at all. Everything's so dark. And despite my spells, I can see nothing. And I bet my bottom dollar that this news a murmuring spread through the assembled marsh folk. Panic began to set in. But the wise woman was not done. She may not have known where the moon was, but if a fight was coming with the creatures in the darkness, she did not intend to simply roll over. Now I'll think on it, and maybe I can help you yet, but in the meantime, if you hear something coming at night, tell me. And though the horrors may come to your door, put a pinch of salt, a button, and some straw on the door sill at night, and I promise you, light or none, they cannot cross it. So the people went away, somewhat reassured, though the nights were still dark and the moon still never came, and they talked of little else. Gossip amongst them before had covered a huge range of topics. Who was seen emerging early in the morning from whose cottage? What was happening to the price of straw these days? How much better it was to be a marsh dweller than one of those fancy townsfolk with the highfalutin ways. But now all the conversation was about the missing moon and the misfortune it would bring upon them. There was an inn, of course. Though far removed from the thoroughfare of English life, this was still England. And as anyone who has spent any time in this country at all knows, there is always a pub. And in the inn, the people spoke loudest of all, as they drank their ale and smoked their tobacco. One evening it so happened that a man from the far end of the Boglands was puffing on his pipe and listening to the conversation, when, with a start, he sat up and slapped his knee. The pub folk turned to look at him. Oh goodness, I clean forgot, but I reckon I know where the moon is. I'm sure he was met with a few expressions of disbelief, 
quiet, you drunken fool, and such like. But then he began to tell his story of how weeks ago he had been lost in the bogs at night, and how, at the very last moment before the creatures took him, a brilliant light had frightened them all away, and helped him find the path again. He was so crazed he hadn't questioned it at the time, but now, thinking back to that white light, it was very much like the light of the moon, and he dismissed it as fancy at the time, but had he glimpsed a face in that light, all topped with dazzling yellow hair? Listening to his story, even the most cynical of the pubgoers were soon converted, and a great sense of excitement gripped the listeners, and soon the whole crowd of them was marching disorderly to the mill and to the wise woman. The traveller repeated his story to the woman. She listened carefully, nodding along, and once he was finished, she took out the book, the mirror and the pot once again. Can you find her now? asked the mob, all worked up. After a few minutes, the wise woman turned away from her instruments to address them. It's still dark, still too dark for me to discern anything. Aww went the mob in disappointment. But I can tell you what to do so you'll be able to find her yourself. Ooh, went the mob. Now go together, all of you, and just before night gathers, put a stone in your gob, take a hazel twig in your hands, grasp it firmly, and this is important, do not say a word until you are safe home again. Not a word. Um went the mob. Then, walk into the marsh. Banish all fear from your mind. Walk until you find a coffin, a candle and a cross. Then you'll be close to the moon. Search round well and you shall find her. Um went the now very unsure mob. But where will we find her? And stones in our mouths, really? And and, and what if the bogles catch us? Look, you bunch of fools, said the wise woman, somewhat unkindly, as if the course of action she had just outlined was perfectly normal and didn't naturally lead to actually lots of quite sensible questions being asked to it, which it certainly did. I can tell you no more. You can do exactly as I've just told you, or you can stay cowering at home and do without the moon forever. Yeah? Capiche? One particularly worried mob member spoke up. You can't tell us any more, really? I mean, surely there's something behind all this. You can explain your process of reasoning, how you've got here, but to the whole stone in the mouth and hazel twig thing. But she was rapidly shushed by the others, who knew that the wise woman's magic worked in ways simple folk could simply never hope to understand. And so... Come the next night, the people gathered and did what the wise woman had said. Every one of them with a stone in their mouth and a hazel twig in their hands. And despite the danger, despite the importance of their task and their respect for the wise woman, they probably felt a little bit foolish and definitely uncomfortable. Mouths are really not designed to hold stones. Nevertheless, they did not say a word, but as instructed, as darkness fell, they set off silently, 
into the marsh. It was spooky on the dark paths, and a dread crept over the people as they stumbled onwards. They could see nothing, but they could hear sighings, the beat of wings, and the faint touch of cold, wet fingers on their legs as they passed by. But despite their instincts, they pressed on, held the stones in their mouths, held faith in the wise woman's words. They looked for the coffin, the candle and the cross. And in time, they made it to the still, stagnant pool where the moon lay buried. And there they stopped, for that huge black bogle stone, half submerged in the water, looked like nothing so much as a strange coffin. And at its head, that great snag, the root that held the moon, stretched out its tendrils in a dark, gruesome parody of a cross. And should there be any doubt left remaining, there upon the stone was a light of a will-o'-the-wisp, a sickly, unnatural light flickering like a dying candle that never quite went out. Really, thought the sceptical one, she couldn't have just told us exactly what we were looking for. A big stone, not an actual coffin, really. How difficult could that have been? But she didn't say anything, as she held the stone tightly in her mouth. None of the people spoke, nor did they let the stones fall or lose a grasp on the hazel twigs. For they knew that should they disregard the wise woman's instructions, the creatures they could feel in the air beside them would jump upon them. Silently, a group of them moved forward, hazel twigs in hand, they gripped the stone, and they pushed, and they pulled, and they heaved, and with the effort of all assembled, eventually the stone moved. Long afterwards, those who had grasped the stone would swear that for one instant they saw a strange and beautiful face looking up at them from the black water underneath it. But the light came so fast and strong that they had to avert their eyes, and all around them the night was suddenly alive with the terrible wail of the marsh horrors, desperately beating their retreat from that white, dazzling light. And when the people looked back, the moon was back in the sky. For she had learned her lesson, and her curiosity was well and truly sated. She hadn't waited around, but had leapt far away from those cursed lands at the very first opportunity. And as the people looked around, they realised they could see. The treacherous waters, the safe paths, all the great bogs stretching away. They could see them all, almost as clear as day. As for the bogles and the witches and the dead men, they were nowhere to be seen at all. They were back in hiding, muttering about how they would have got away with it too if it wasn't for those darn kids. From her place amongst the stars, the moon smiled kindly down, deeply relieved to be free, to be back where she belonged, and ever so grateful for her rescue by the kind and resourceful car folk. They do say that even to this day the moon shines brighter on the cars than anywhere else, in recognition of the help afforded her by the people there. And if you should ever doubt this story, you can still find to this day the great snag forming the cross, 
the half-sunken stone which covered the poor moon. And should you be foolish enough to go there on a dark night, you might even see the light of the will-o'-the-wisp upon it. So there you have it, the story of the buried moon, and proof that in the cars, however you might feel, you are most definitely not safest of all. Now this is the bit of the podcast where I tell you the story has various different sources and different versions, and I give you a brief outline of the differences between them, and I say which version I used and which bits jarred my 21st century morality enough for me to leave them out, or at least turn them down incredibly. And If this is the bit of the podcast you'd really like, then I've got some bad news for you. But if, as is more likely, you're not too fussed about that bit, then good for you, because this story has literally one source. Singular. That source is Marie Balfour, or MC Balfour, and she is the podcast's favourite reoccurring character class, a 19th century folklore collector. Balfour grew up partly in New Zealand and partly in Edinburgh, and she was cousin to famous author Robert Louis Stevenson, him of Treasure Island and Dr Jekyll and Mr Hyde fame. In 1887, a 25-year-old Marie came to live in the Lincolnshire cars with her doctor husband, and it was here that she discovered the tales. Later, when she had moved away from the area, she submitted her stories to the journal Folklore, a publication of the Folklore Society, and in due course they were printed in that journal. Balfour would write fiction in her later life, but it is for these collected tales that she is best known. Now in all there are ten legends of the Lincolnshire cars that were published in 1894, Balfour claimed to have collected them from a variety of locals to the area, and many of them are completely unique, though a number of them share tropes common across folk tales. They are written in a style that is equally unique, and which captures the very strong accent of the day including lots of local words, colloquialisms and spelling variants meant to evoke the sound of the car's tongue. As Maureen James puts it, Balfour had a good ear for dialect and phraseology, but an inconsistent approach to recording such sound. Now I'm not going to attempt to replicate it here, but suffice to say the tales are rather difficult to read, though once you get a flow for it and speak it out loud a bit, you can get there soon enough. Now, some of you might have noticed I did drop in the word claimed when talking about Balfour's sources, and I did so because there is some debate over whether they are actually authentic collected folk tales. The suspicion arises largely because they are very strange stories, and aside from one, have no other sources, which is definitely a little suspicious. Furthermore, Balfour only heard each from one person. The story you've just heard is credited to a nine-year-old cripple girl called Fanny. Now, even if Balfour was told it by Fanny, there is some question about whether this was just a story told in a single family rather than general folklore. So that is all a possibility. However, having said that, the most recent in-depth study I can find, by the aforementioned Marine James, reached the conclusion that the tales were most likely real stories, written between the 17th and 19th century and unlikely to have been invented by Balfour. So current best thinking is that despite some doubts, these really are tales of the cars. As I mentioned at the start of the podcast, the tales recall landscape that had disappeared even before Balfour's time, and in the introduction to her collection, she is very eager to both dispel misconceptions of the modern car lands, 
and paint a vivid picture of the eerie landscape that existed before all that pesky draining of the land to make practical and healthy, but boring, farmland. On the improved conditions of the cars, I'll quote directly from her. Quote, In time, the running water carries away the stagnant, and so, already, it is only here and there that one can find traces of the poor, auger-shaken, opium-eating creatures of earlier times. Many an old woman eats opium openly, and if it all the men who can get it will drink gin. But the days are gone by when the one or the other was in constant and daily need to still the shaking or deaden the misery born of the fever mists and stagnant pools. End quote. I don't know about you, but to me there's something about her harking back to it that does sound almost wistful. Just to touch briefly on some of the other stories in the collection, they are a real mixed bag. A couple are quite short and less stories than collections of factoids about the inhuman inhabitants of the marsh, some of whom we met in the tale today, but others who can actually be friendly on occasion. Chief amongst these is the Tiddyman, without a name which may be the most famous of the car legends and which is widely known in Lincolnshire. There is a tale which focuses entirely on my personal favourite marsh horror, the animated Dead Hand. Though that story is sadly short of all the give a big hand for, it's completely armless and there's nobody there type puns I would choose to pepper it with. There are also stories featuring fools, dying maidens and cursed murderers and as I mentioned before, all pretty much unique and a lot of these stories are considerably more brutal, more hopeless, and far less coherent than the Dead Moon story, which has an unambiguously happy ending, with no one dead at all. At least no one who wasn't at the start of the story. I may get round to telling some of these stories in time, but just to give you a feel about one of the stranger, bloodier ones, Flying Childer. Flying Childer is about a man who abducts a woman against her will, forces her to live in a house with him, he acquires said house by murdering the owner and then feeds the hands and feet of his victim to the pigs in the yard. The woman he's abducted hears the disembodied extremities calling to be buried with the rest of the body and she obeys them and does just that. Soon after, all the main characters are dead. But without giving too much away, the story doesn't end there. A couple of weeks back I said Albina was an odd story but it's really peanuts compared to Flying Childer. Yes, the legends of the cars really are a great and decidedly odd collection. And what about the buried moon itself? I really enjoyed this story, and the matter-of-fact way the moon is a character. And though there is no hint of this being related, it certainly puts one in mind of more ancient myths of a moon goddess. I'm also a big fan of the evocative descriptions of the marshland, and especially of its monstrous inhabitants. The nights on the marshes really are more densely packed with monsters than your average haunted house, a never-ending cavalcade of horrors which is a veritable Piccadilly circus of night terrors, all constantly bumping into one another and having to apologise, because they're British. I've no evidence for this, but that kind of hyperbolic description fitting as many different creatures in as possible does seem to me to tie back slightly to the story being told by a child. And the resolution does please me greatly. A wise woman with arcane knowledge and insight, combined with a trip to the pub. Doesn't sound like a bad night out to me. That's it for this episode. Now next time, we'll be starting our first foray into the world of Welsh mythology, with a story taken from the Mabinogion. 
You can follow Tales of Britain and Ireland podcast on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. There's also a website, talesofbritainandireland.com, where there's a page for each episode which contains more information including illustrations, asides and recaps, along with other additional bits and pieces to explore. The intro music was written and performed by Alice Nichols, and you can find all the other musical credits on the episode page on the website. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please do share it with others or give it a review, as those really are the best ways to help us out. You can also join Tales of Britain and Ireland on Patreon to get extra members' episodes. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me again soon.